Welcome to the Inspiring Leadership podcast series. This is aimed for you aspiring leaders, whatever level you're at, whether you're beginning out in your careers as managers and leaders, whether you're in middle ranking roles, or whether you're CEOs and chairman of boards, there's always something we can all learn. And it's particularly the skills, stories, tips and techniques that you can pass on to those you lead and your teams. Hello, I'm General Mike Jackson, and taking my part in this series of uh, conversations on inspiring leadership. Well, General, thank you very much for, for being on the series. It's, um, it's lovely to have you here. So many of the other people we've had on referred to you as someone they found uh, inspiring, occasionally a little bit scary, uh, but sure. certainly very motivational. Sure. <laughs> so lovely to have you on. And the first question really is um, your, your journey uh, into leadership um, from, from a young man. Um, tell us a bit about that and, and who influenced you? Because I think your father was quite a key figure. Uh, he himself was uh, in the army uh, and, the, and the attitude, the way he brought you up. Do you want to just perhaps tell us a bit about that and your journey into leadership? Yes, I mean, I was a typical army brat, um, moved around with the family quite a lot, boarding school. Um, and my father was very perhaps ahead of his time uh, in the way that he allowed me space uh, to try things out for myself, um, including um, various journeys on my own, at an age when I think eyebrows would be raised very high in today's world. But a 14-year-old hitchhiking solo through parts of Europe. Um, and I think I own quite a lot for that. Mm. Yeah, I mean, fa father figures make a, a huge impact. And mm. when, when you, you joined the army, you joined the intelligence corps, uh, to begin with, because you had a, a degree in uh, modern languages and Russian, which which uh, you were able to use once. Studies. Which one was? My degree is in Russian studies. Russian studies. Well, great. Uh, and so the intelligence corps were keen to um, commission you, um, mm -hmm. but but you then did an attachment to two para, and yep. your your head was turned. Tell us about the journey from there onwards into into your military career. Well, um, yeah, I mean, even before joining the army, I mean, I was in the CCF at school. Uh, I was a school prefect. You start to, quite an early age, start to be given responsibility. Um, but yes, Sandhurst, the intelligence corps, um, an in-service degree, followed by an infantry attachment. And as you put it, I'm afraid, um, I was a great disappointment to the intelligence corps because I decided as I came towards the end of that two year second, that this was the sort of soldiering I really wanted and um, applied to transfer, which didn't make me the most popular young officer in the intelligence corps. But I got there. 
And and when you were eventually made that change into two power, and we we swapped stories when I had to make my transition from the raw signals into the green Howards, um, you eventually did it, having made yourself unpopular as I did. But um, you you joined the parachute regiment at a time of um, real um, troubles in Ireland, and and found mm. yourself in some pretty horrendous scrapes. Do you want to perhaps yeah. talk a bit about that? Yeah, that was after transferring. Um, my two years with two power, let me see if I can get this right, um, 66 to 68, 9, something of that order. I then had a year with the intelligence corps um, uh, during which I was applying to transfer. And I finally transferred to the parachute regiment in the autumn of 1970 and was patient to one power, then resident, one of the resident battalions in Northern Ireland. Um, so there I was, November 70, um, a year or so after uh, the army went operational in Northern Ireland. And um, the rest is history, as they say. Yeah. And what, what were your learnings fr from that time? I mean, there's obviously this bloody Sunday, there's Warren Point, things like that. Yeah. What, what yeah. do you take away as some of the learnings that you learned as a leader that, that is relevant to people who are listening now? Because they, they're being thrown into nothing like you experienced. That's, that's war fighting, but we call it operations. But they're now dealing with all sorts of problems they've never faced before, just as you yeah. hadn't faced yeah. that, that before. Well, I remember being pretty shocked because um, that winter, 70-71, um, Belfast, which was our pretty much our patch, although we were province reserve, but Belfast, was approaching anarchy. Hmm. Uh, the breakdown of civil order, the rioting, the shootings, the bombings, etc., and you thought, bloody hell, this is part of the United Kingdom. Mm. Um, uh, well, one gets used to things, and um, uh, it was a very eventful tour. Yeah. Because in the autumn of, let me get it right, 71 comes internment. That winter, the security situation deteriorates very rapidly. Um, London Derry, Derry as, as you choose, um, is virtually a no-go zone for the security forces. Um, and then, of course, the traumatic events of so-called Bloody Sunday early in 72. Um, so I think one grew up rather quickly. <laughs> Yeah. in that environment um, and in many ways that tour was almost an apprenticeship for me um, because back I go uh, let me get this right um, uh, 89 am I right um, no sorry 79 I do beg your pardon 79 Back I go as a company commander, um, this time Ballykinla, 
which leads to Warren Point, um, which is pretty traumatic stuff. And then later still, back I go for another, the third uh, two-year tour um, as Commander 39 Brigade, uh, responsible for wider Belfast, and at one point, right down to South Down, but um, um, that changed. So Northern Ireland under my skin. Yeah. And, and two, of my, two of my three children born in Northern Ireland. Wow. Um, in parentheses, um, I've been able to get them Irish passports. So they, so that they remain EU citizens. Uh, whether that goes down well with everybody or not, I don't know, but they think it's a great idea. <laughs> not, only, not only the children, but the grandchildren. Yes. Because the constitution is very generous about citizenship. Yes. So all grandchildren also now have Irish passports. Yeah, well, I... I, I um... By getting through Dover or Heathrow with less fuss. Yes, yes. Well, I, I've married into um, Donny Gall family and uh, ah. Van Doren, so I know the area, know the area well. Um, but just thinking back to some of the the really tough moments that you had, uh, Warren Warren Point was grim, but people who weren't there and don't understand about it couldn't understand just how tough it was for you to have experienced what went on. Can you just explain a bit of actually physically what went on at the time and what you experienced when you came to the scene? Yeah. Um, well, as I say, I was a company commander uh, working out of um, uh, Ballykinler. And we always had one company detached under command of the South Armagh Battalion um, to bolster them up. And it was change round day. And uh, with hindsight, one can say that wasn't terribly clever uh, to do the change rounds by road, but that's what we were doing because there was a shortage of helicopter hours. And the IRA got lucky. Um, they had noticed and worked on the fact that between Newry, where the company base was, and Warren Point docks, there was two each and pro each. The docks were actually run by the Royal Marine Detachment. And so the, there was a fairly predictable target. Little did they, I'm sure, think that they would get um, the best part of a rifle company uh, in their sights, uh, which they did, I'm afraid. Uh, and. I have to admit, through gritted teeth, it was well planned on their part. The first bomb um, uh, took out um, a four-tonner almost completely. Uh, and then, cunningly, they had put in the second bomb where they thought the incident control point would be set up, and they got it right. Um, that killed, amongst others, Colonel David Blair, who was then the commanding officer of the uh, on-the-ground battalion, the Queen's Own Highlanders. And um, myself and my company, we happened to be in Bestbrook Mill um, uh, at the time, having come in from a three, four-day operation on the railway line, uh, which runs through South Armagh. Uh, and 
very quickly, the brigade commander, David Thorne, arrived um, and took charge because the commanding officer, David Blair, was dead. The second in command, typical, was in Hong Kong on a recce for the next arms plot move for the Queen's Own Highlanders. So the battalion, the Queen's Own Highlanders, um, became headless. And David Thorne, the brigade commander, very rapidly sent for a company commander of the Queen's Own Highlanders from Crossville again uh, and made him local acting unpaid lieutenant colonel and said, you are not commanding until we get the second in command back, Mackenzie. Then he saw me, he said, what are you doing here? I said, well, we just come. He said, right, get down there and sort it out. So we flew down um, to the site. The second bomb was 10 minutes gone, I think. And you can imagine the scene was pretty awful, mayhem body parts and shock. Um, but there we are, we had to get on with it. And so mm. we did. Um, so we did, but it, it, it was a raw, very raw moment at the time and a pretty raw memory even now. Yeah, yeah, I, I, just, I just can't imagine it. And- It, it was terrific. Yeah. Mm. And um, people who are not in such situations find it hard to understand, just as uh, my nephew is an intensive care doctor dealing with COVID wards at the moment and seeing lots of oh. people dying there. And it's different, of course, but it's still just as grim. And it was David Hudson who did four tours with the SAS, who was on one of the interviews. Uh, and, and as I was saying to you, David and James Bashel and I did uh, oh. training and P Company together. And David talked about his father, who was at Kohima, uh, suffering from PTSD from what he'd seen with the Japanese, yeah. the battles there, which were grim. Uh, and, and then on air, he said, and actually, in my tour, I suffered in about seven years after leaving the army from very bad PTSD from what I'd seen. Um, so I think what you talk about is harrowing. And a lot of people, it stays with them for a long time. Oh. I have been fortunate. Um, I sleep at night, and, uh, and there are other incidents too, which are, uh, are painful to dwell on. But um, I'm fortunate. Um, if, if there was ever a chance of PTSD, it has not materialized. Yeah. Um, and of course, Warren Point, yes, um, appalling scenes, casualties, but compared to Kohima, yeah. Compared to Normandy, um, you've got a war on point every day. Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, I don't make too much of that myself right. because it doesn't compare to the experiences of World War II soldiers. No. Uh, and one of the interesting things that when we're talking with General, uh, General Sir Rupert Smith, he was talking about the Gulf and um, how he'd upset some people in some certain teeth arms. There was a parachute regiment officer doing commanding a, an armoured division. This is our job. Um, but the parachute regiment has done incredibly well in getting people into the top roles in the army oh. and special forces. 
what do you think has contributed to how did they get so many fine officers? I mean, I, as you know, we discussed, I was a Green Howard. I came from the Royal Signals of the Green Howards and we had Peter Inge and Richard Dannett and Nick Horton. And, and we produced an awful lot for one battalion, but from three battalions, you produced some phenomenal officers. What, what was the secret of the success? What's the secret source? I think, I think the, the whole sort of atmosphere, um, the reputation, the, the short, but I would argue valiant history of the regiment, um, it does attract people. It attracted me. Mm. The soldiers are, dare I say, above average. Um, they really are. Um, uh, most satisfying to be in command of. They're, they're great people. Um, they think they are self-starters um, and I believe that ambiance, that relationship, that um, uh, overall picture does attract um, coming through Sandhurst some of the best of those young cadets. Yeah. Um, not, it's not everybody's cup of tea I, and, and you know the the county regiment, although sadly um, there aren't uh, many of those, people will say, well, it's all my fault anyway because of the infantry reorganisation, which we may come to. Um, but it does attract some very good young officers uh, who then make their way through the army's jungle of promotions and all the rest of it. Yeah. And, and we've got a, a number of CEOs and leaders, business leaders listening uh, to this series in 50 countries around the world. Um, what do you think are the lessons that the, the military learned about, and still, still does, about finding talent people, developing them, having like airborne yeah. training, which I had to go through, I had to part, well, and so many didn't get through. What, what yeah. do you think the lesson is for, for business and business leaders? Well, I... I think we can all be very proud of, of the Army's MS military secretary system, um, which I obviously was involved in both, both as a subject and then in later years as an uh, operator of that system, whereby we have the rigorous annual report, we have the rigor of the promotion and appointment boards, um, for those who don't know, who may watch um, this uh, podcast, if that's the right cry, is it? It is yeah, good. It is. Uh, um, the promotion board is is presented. Let us say, uh, in this year uh, promotion year, you're looking for four new brigade commanders. The, the absolute inside track job uh, of the officer corps uh, seniors. Um, and the board will be presented with a dozen, perhaps, candidates. And their, their promotion, their, I'm so sorry, their annual report books arrive and you score them. Each 
of five members of the board scores them. And if, if two members are more than two marks apart, marks out of 10, half marks are accepted, um, they get locked in a dark room and, uh, until they have resolved their differences to within that uh, two-mark bracket. And then you have an order of merit. It's rigorous. Uh, I'm not saying it's infallible. Um, there are times when perhaps somebody gets promoted who really shouldn't have been, and it, it can be a bit public, and you crash and burn. Um, or a good man is missed, um, and it's to the army's detriment, let alone his personal detriment. But I think on the whole, these are very rare, and pretty much by and large, this rigorous system, because we can't measure performance by profits, for example, or how many widgets are built in this year. It, it, it has inevitably a subjective element, but, but, yeah. the, but the process is designed to minimize that uh, element of it. Yeah. So I think we've got it pretty good, actually. Yeah, I, I think you have. And the, uh, some very fine people. We had our staff college reunion, which is when I, <laughs> about a year and a half ago, I started this podcast series because I saw a whole variety of people like John Lorimer and others. And, um, yes. And, and James Bashel, particularly, who I'm very fond of. And we just said, let's let's start the interviews. And I began with the commandant, Paul Nansen, uh, who was a very fine commandant at, at Sandhurst. And thinking back to sort of Sandhurst, perhaps, uh, and when you were, I don't know, about 18 or you did the in-service degree, um, what bit of advice, now having gone all the way up to chief of the general staff, chief of the defence staff, tri-service, looking back... No, 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 hang on, I... Never chief of the defence staff. All right, chief of the general staff. Chief of the general staff. Yeah, um, I, I didn't catch the selectors' eye for. <laughs> their, for their, MS, their MS system was probably sussed you out too early. In a way. <laughs> um, um, yeah, right. But looking back at Sandhurst, what what bit of advice would you now give to someone early on in their their time as a young officer or as a leader just starting out in a business? aged 18 to 20, what, what bit of a wisdom advice, looking back, that you've learned, would you, would you give them? Uh, it's a hell of a question, that, actually. Yeah. yeah. Because, um, it, I mean, one sort of approach to it is to be rather egotistic, and it's not me to be that. Um, I was what I was. I finished up a junior under officer. Um, um, so uh, the Sandhurst system clearly thought Jackson had some legs. Yeah. Um, but what about me persuaded the Sandhurst process to put me into a JUO slot? Um, I'm always inclined to say, go ask them. Um, yeah. I mean, Sandhurst is not a bad introduction to the army as a whole because it's competitive. Um, there is an order of merit, academic order of merit. Somebody gets the sort of honor. Um, and that sense of 
the army seeking to get the best out of those who join it um, starts right there. Yeah. Um, even starts at uh, what I remember as the regular commissions board. It's now Army Officers Selection Board, I think. Yeah. In fact, um, we, inter we interviewed the president. Westbury. He starts at Westbury. Some get in, some don't. Yes. <laughs> Judgments are made. Um, and it's always a sensitive area, I think, when one is judging one's fellow men. But it's part and parcel of getting the right people uh, as time goes by into the top leadership. Yeah, and it is interesting that the amount of time, effort and money that the armed forces spend on developing their leaders, whereas yes. when, when I'm working with CEOs, they do have some coaching and they perhaps go on courses and things, but it, they, they really don't spend anything like the amount of time or resources to develop their leaders. They often expect them to learn on the job and the results are often pretty damaging because people are not that good learning on the job necessarily. I don't know what view you have on that. I would agree. Um, uh, yes, the army does have that huge advantage of being structured in a way whereby its leadership returns time and time again to the question of leadership mm -hmm. and study. Um, you know, and it starts to hell with the officers. Let's talk about the soldiers for a moment. Mm. Which of, you know, we've all been to passing soldiers, passing out parades, 20 or 30 young men standing tall, being applauded by their family and friends and girlfriends. Which of those young men, now private soldiers, will be a regimental sergeant major in 15, 20 years' time? Which of them and why? Um, uh, and of course, you know, it starts with out of this bunch, two out of the whatever, 20, shall we say, um, are going to be early promotions to Lance Corporal. And then on it goes. Mm. Uh, this rigorous seeking out of the best we have. Um, for me, it goes to the core of the army's prowess, if I may boast of it. Yeah. No, I, I agree with you, and it really serves us well. And I'm looking as I work with CEOs and leaders in business to find ways of building trust, selecting people, looking at who has the talent. And it, it, it's a challenge uh, if, you, if you haven't got the same rigor and the same structure. Thinking about your own career, would you pick out perhaps a, a couple of your proudest moments? What would what would you say they would be uh, in any of the different ranks you had or in the places you'd be? What would be your couple of your proudest moments? Oh, yeah. Well, two. I, you asked for two. Let me see. To be appointed CGS as the professional head of the service you have loved and worked in all your adult life. That's a hell of a thing. It's a hell of a thing. The, the other proud moment, I, I'm not sure about pride, but 
absolutely fundamental. I had to dig deep into the fundamentals was um, the performance at Pristina Airport in the Kosovo conflict of 99, where um, I had to stick my neck out, but I felt I had to. Um, and this was with General Clark, the American, wasn't it? Yes. Do you want to just yeah. tell people who don't know the story about it, because I well, find it fascinating. It's all in, in a certain book, Chapter 11. I do commit commend it to um still still on um on sale at amazon who do a very good deal so um having got the commercial out of the way yeah um it's hard to put into um a two-minute lecturette but let me do my best um belgrade has conceded um by which i i'm mean uh, we had a, an agreement they would withdraw their security forces and in would go uh, K4 Kosovo force mainly comprised of NATO nations. Um, the Russians had been upset all, all the while. The, the ties between Russia and Serbia, um, the Orthodox Church, their Slavs, etc. Um, Moscow was pretty cross um, that NATO had undertaken um, military action and basically they tweaked our nose um, by moving a relatively small contingent from Bosnia where they'd been for s several years um, in, into Pristina into uh, Kosovo um, now, uh, General Wesley Carp, who was then Supreme Allied Commander Europe, Sakur, um, and also nationally uh, Commander of uh, US Forces Europe, um, had a fixation, I, I'm afraid I would put it, that um, the Russians were uh, trying to partition Kosovo, he described it as uh, uh, rather like the race for um, Berlin in 1945, a, a rather grandiose um, uh, parallel in my view. Um, we hadn't gone there to do that. To do what he wanted would have risked. Uh, how big the risk? I have no idea, but it was more than zero a confrontation, or worse, between um, K4 and that Russian contingent. And when it came down to it, the only country which showed any interest in carrying out the direction to stop the Russians um, in the end was Britain. France declined, America itself declined. Um, and I thought, no, this is not something uh, that I can in all conscience do. So we had a bit of a row. Yeah. Which cost, because, you know, loyalty to one's superior officer is mother's milk to yeah. any soul. Yeah. And that went a bit sour, I'm afraid. What, what, was the, what was the consequences for your career? I mean, you did the right thing. We all well, know. <laughs> I was on the phone at one point 
um, to London with then CBS, General, now Field Marshal, Charles Guthrie, and the then Secretary of State, um, uh, uh, oh, golly, I've gone brain dead, um, Robertson, saying, I'd better resign. I'm, you know, I'm failing to carry out a, an order, so I'd better, and they said, Hems don't do that. Um, and I went up and made contact with the Russian commander, one on General Victor Zavazin. And we, after a slightly frosty start, got on rather well. It did help you spoke Russian, I suppose. Da, конечно. He also appreciated um, what I carried in my um, uh, map pocket alongside the map. Uh, um, uh, a small flask of that wonderful brown liquid from Northern Britain, which <laughs> Usually. That's, that's been a key, a key component of your life is that small flask, hasn't it? It's, it's become your... Well, I enjoy it. Card. I do indeed. Yeah. Quite wrong to deny it. Yeah, no, that's great. But you, you have been known as a real um, a strong leader, a character. Um, what, what about some of the, the darkest moments? You talked about Northern Ireland, but and you've talked about Kosovo. That was a tough one. But what would be some other things where you've learned some humility because you didn't get it right. I mean, you've got a lot of things right, but, but what about no, the lesson no, us in, in getting things wrong and admitting that we got it wrong? Yes. Um, no, the assumption that uh, um, you can walk on water and never ever call it other than straight down the middle I, is of course nonsensical. Um, human beings are fallible. We are all fallible. And it's why um, one does need structures and processes to guard against that infallibility. Mm. Um, but <laughs> I mean, Pristina was a dark moment um, because. I was re refusing to accept the direction of my superior officer. Yeah. My superior officer in the NATO chain of command, of course, I was a NATO officer uh, rather than a Brit, but one, one can't avoid being a Brit. That's <laughs> what I was born to and have been all my life. Um, in some ways, I recounted... Um, Telephoning London, and uh, I—it's a moot point whether I should have done that. Yeah. Um, but it, I could see resignation on the on the horizon. P forty five dangling in the wind. Um, Fortunately, it didn't come to it. Yeah. Yeah. But it was—I had to search the conscience quite hard which is not a pleasant thing to do when you're um, up against it, but there you go. Yeah, yeah. And, and have you, during your time as a, when you were serving as an army officer, you're a deep thinking leader as well as a practical um, take, take the hill kind of man. Have you compared leadership lessons from the military with leadership lessons from business and 
talked with business colleagues and and found out their views. Uh, I'd just be interested in any any thoughts or reflections you had for people who are listening. Yes. The lessons that you could take from the military that are very relevant for people in a, a crisis, a pandemic now and a recession and their businesses are going down the tubes and they don't know what's happening next week. They don't want to have next year. No. You know, what's... what's... No, I, you know, one admires those who have to cope with the extraordinary circumstances of um, the pandemic. Um, and of course, it's not just them, it's the people they employ and their livelihoods and their families. It, it's it's um, a weighty burden. I'm not sure, you know, Jonathan, that I can give great pearls of wisdom um, uh, regarding the commercial world, because I've never really been that involved. Um, a bit since retiring, yes. And... I do some speaking, or I did, and remember those days before the bug? Um, they've dried up. Um, surprise. Um, and I would be asked by some to talk about leadership, and, and I would. But it was from my perspective. I wasn't trying to tell a CEO how to run his business or a chairman how to run his board. Because um, uh, I think that... It's slightly overbearing. Um, if the audience, when I spoke about these, if they felt there was something worth taking away from what I was saying, then win-win all round. And I hope I, hope I was able to stir thoughts. But um, I'm very wary about people who preach, if you yeah. know. I do. Um, uh, that rather unattractive sense of infallibility, which um, is a nonsense. We're all fallible. We, we, we certainly are. And, and I think one of the things that is so very relevant in the military, whether you've been in the military and never in business, is your ability to read the soldiers, uh, read the people around you, read politicians. You had to do that a lot. Because obviously I was ADC to your predecessor. I don't know how many before you, Peter Inge was, but I was Ooh, quite a few. <laughs> I was certainly almost almost sacked twice. Um, but those are hilarious stories. My two predecessors have both been sacked as ADC to CGS. So I was. I think the reason he kept me on was he couldn't fire three because it would look bad on him rather than on me. <laughs> I should have been fired. I was hopeless. Yeah. I, yeah. remember, I remember, yes, yeah, yeah. many. But Michael did have a, something of a reputation of sort of eating his ADCs before breakfast. Correct, correct. Both of them were thrown out of the army, poor things, and they were very fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. But but the, the reading of people is a skill that you really needed in your role. And, and did you read up about it or just innately you got a sense whether someone was lying to you or whether someone was a fine leader? And did you sometimes misread someone and, and they, they sold you a story and they were just not good and you thought they were good? I mean, interesting your reading of human psychology in the military, really. Mm. That's, uh, that's quite a poser. Um, I can't recall... 
um, an instance other than one, which I'll come to, um, whereby I thought this chat talking to me is a complete bullshitter. Um, uh, no, because if the army gets it right, you don't get people like that. Yeah. Um, now we've all known some officers who perhaps are um, uh, a little pleased with themselves over and above their ability. Mm. Um, but that's not, it's not the same thing um, in my view. The, the one instance was I had to part company with, um, just before deploying to Kosovo, I had to part company with my MA, military assistant, you know, for those non-military who may watch, um, um, generals are given a, a young up-and-coming lieutenant colonel to make sure that the general stays on the straight and narrow. And uh, one MA I had, it, uh, it didn't work and we had to part company. I'm afraid at my instance. Yeah. But we were, we were about to deploy and you didn't want the results of whatever operations you were about to go and do tainted by the fact uh, a bloody stupid general and that splendid young lieutenant colonel of his can't get on. Yeah. Um, um, I'm afraid in the end of the day, uh, I had to do it yeah. for my mind. Yeah. No, and, and I think there was one CEO said to me once, what is it you know about a situation where he had to sack somebody? What is it you know now about them that you'll find out in six to 12 months time, but you know it now, you know, you know, be firm yeah. in the decision, be kind in how you execute yeah. it and you help them move on. Well, I, hope, I, I hope it was done as gently as possible, but you're quite right. I, I think I let it go for the best part of a year. And I shouldn't have done. Yeah. yeah. Rather than have put the whole system into a flat spin with 10 days to go before deployment, um, that didn't sort of help much either. And that was my fault. I should have, I should have grasped that nettle and realized that it, the human chemistry of this relationship, which needs to be very intimate, yes. ain't going to work. Yeah, but well, I put it. Uh, yeah, it's it's good that you you did deal with it. I, I'm just uh, reminded a long time ago when I was serving, a friend of mine was sitting on the sofa uh, somewhere uh, on an operation uh, when you came in with uh, Richard Dannett, my old commanding officer, and the two of you were having quite a heated discussion about something. Unfortunately, you didn't see him. He was on the sofa and he slunk down into a corner while the two of you were having a fantastic, strong words with each other, both respecting each other's different uh, opinions. I don't know if you ever remember that, but... Uh, I, do, I do remember. I do remember. Yeah. Um, yeah. I hadn't, I, I hadn't realised there was anybody else in the room. No, no. He, he was very embarrassed about being there and tried to make himself invisible. Because <laughs> when you have two characters like you and Richard Dannett having a having a strong words with each other, that's not the place to be at all. Um, well, yeah. But, uh, I mean, 
on occasion you need that. Yeah. Um, no holes barred discussion. Yeah. Um, clears the air. Yeah. Um, you, know, um, you know, the stakes can get quite high um, on operations, and you just need to be bloody certain that um, we're all of one company. Yes. Yeah. No, no. That's Lives are. Some, it, it's not sometimes it does does lead to a bit of a ding dong. Yeah. But it clears the air. Yeah. Yeah. No. And particularly if people don't hold a grudge afterwards, they respect <laughs> your opinions and they move on. Um, and and you know, leadership has been your lifeblood. You've been learning about it. You've been practicing it. What what do you think makes a good inspiring leader, or just a good leader, if you don't like the word inspiring? What what would what few qualities have you always admired and found serves you well in peacetime and in wartime? Um, you know, it's always this exam, exam question which leaves me floundering. Because, um, again, um, I wouldn't wish to preach, mm. certainly not about myself. Um, but I think the first thing soldiers look for is that their leader knows what he's on, that he's not a bullshitter, that when he doesn't know, he's honest enough and brave enough, perhaps, to say, sorry, I don't know. Um, uh, you know, soldiers want to know where they are. They want to know what's required of them, and they'll give you their all. But equally well, um, Soldiering is almost by definition an uncertain business because there's another bugger out there trying to do to you what you want to do to him. So it's dynamic. Um, so I would say the first thing is, you know, you've got to know professionally you've got to be competent. Don't bullshit. If you don't know, say you don't know. Um, Look after the soldiers as, as best the circumstances allow. Um, get the logistics right, um, which is a huge call. Mm. Um, get the, it's easy to say, but it, it, um, uh, I think that'll do. That's that's excellent. And and another thing is delegation and empowerment of people. Oh, yeah. Airborne airborne initiative, as as I was taught, even oh. doing P Company. Some people yeah. are very directive. Others give a lot of latitude. You talked about your father letting you go at the age of 14 all the way 200 miles to Brussels, which people wouldn't do today. So you were learning airborne initiative even at that age. Um, <laughs> what, what, what is your experience of how much you delegate and... Yeah. How you direct? Thank you. It's a very important dimension to leadership, particularly as you get more senior in, particularly in a large organisation. The thought you can attend to every last jot and tittle is, of course, a nonsense. You can't, nor should you. You be, you get bogged down. Um, uh, always remember the battlefield tour of Franco-Prussian War. Um, and 
I can't remember the name of the French marshal, but he was being defeated um, uh, at the end of the, in the last battle. Uh, and, and what he did, he gave up his responsibilities as the commander in the field. And he, he started life as a gunner and was found at the end as number three on a French artillery piece because he tried to do too much himself. And so delegation, Marshal, no, it was nearly there, not to worry. Um, delegation is key. Um, and you get the best out of people. Um, you tell them what you want done. You tell them what they've got to do it with. But the how, the how is for them. And you can set a context, set an envelope, but let them, let them get on. Um, and... If you get the delegation right for the senior commander, it means he's got the time and opportunity to think. And, 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 uh, and if you don't have that, um, you are jeopardizing, in my view, your ability as that um, higher level commander. So delegate and people rise to the occasion. Yeah, yeah. A clap on the shoulders. Well done. Costs nothing, but it means a great deal. Yeah. No, that's that's fantastic. And we're almost at the end, uh, General. So I just I just wondered, um, is there anything unusual that you want to tell people about? They might not know about you as a as a leader. I mean, anything anything you've read or anything you've done or interesting hobbies that people might not know about you? It'd be quite amusing. And far too what? Personal. <laughs> far too personal. It's not, it's not about me. It's about um, the theme you've selected here, leadership. So picking the theme of inspiring leadership, um, what about um, any books that you would recommend or, you know, a couple of books that are really good read and you found have stood the test of time? Well, for a soldier? For a soldier? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, both the man and the book he wrote to me epitomize the very best of British generalship. And that is Bill Slim in Burma and the book he wrote after the war, so poignantly and vividly titled defeat into victory. Yeah. Um, he was a hell of a man, Bill Slim. In, in my view, the best British World War II general. Um, some may not agree, but, but yeah. he turned that round. He turned that campaign round almost by physical presence and willpower. Um, it was a magnificent achievement. And his relationship with his soldiers. I mean, it's worth just adding a vignette, which comes from the book, 
he's turned the tide. Kohima and and um, I've gone brain dead. Kohima and is it Arik- the two defensive battles. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Now I've gone brain dead. Um, they've been won. Fourteenth Army is on the offensive, and he's got breakthrough. He's going very fast indeed. A lot of the supply is by air. So he's pushing his logistic chain a long way and feels that the arithmetic says you can't keep this up. Something's got to give. He puts, come to the point, he puts the 14th Army on half rations. A little while after this, here he is visiting a gunner battery in some jungle clearing. You can imagine six 25-pounders, I think, as they would have been lined up, gunners stripped of the way, dripping with sweat. Hang on, boys, come in. Um, You know, well done. Thanks for everything you're doing. I'm sorry you're having to do this on half rations. To which Bombardier Jones says, don't you worry about that, sir. Keep the ammunition coming. We'll get you to Rangoon. Yeah, brilliant. You can't beat that. No, no. I mean, you know, three or was he four? No, three-star, I think. So three-star general, a large bombardier. That sort of conversation, to me, epitomizes fine leadership. Yeah. And that is a great note to end on. Can I just say, General Sir Mike Jackson, thank you very much for being on the Inspired Edition series. It's fabulous having you on. You've been a personal um, fascination of me, even though I've never served with you. I've always wanted oh, yeah. to chat. So, so thank you very much for being on the series. It's been a real joy. So now you've heard from one of the inspiring leaders that I've interviewed, what are you going to do next? If you want to get some more free material, go to my website, jonathanperks.com, or follow me on LinkedIn, Jonathan Bowman Perks. And there you can get access to my books, uh, Inspiring Leadership and Top Tips for Inspiring Leaders. But if you want to actually do something about being a leader and constantly improving your game, raising your performance, Get in touch with me about coaching you or one of your team that you want to raise the game for them. It's got to be people who want to be good to great, not people who you're trying to fire. And if you're looking for a motivational speaker, get in touch. Or if you want me to work with your team coach, I would be delighted to help you.